welcome to Halfway Expert. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat. I have a PhD in medieval literature and a fear of being wrong that I am treating through exposure therapy. On each episode of Halfway Expert, I spend a week researching a topic that I know nothing about, and then I invite a real expert to come on and set me straight. This week, as part of my short season on climate and climate science, I'm thrilled to have with me Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, an expert in sustainability science. Kimberly Nicholas, thank you so much for joining me today on Halfway Expert. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we really begin, let me tell you a little bit about yourself. You have a PhD in Environment and Resources. Your PhD thesis, which I have read, was about climate change and the future of wine in Sonoma and Napa. You also have two master's degrees, um, M MSCs. One was in land resources, which you finished just before you started your PhD, and one in viniculture, in wine agriculture, uh, which you finished the same year as you finished your PhD, um, which means that you did a PhD and then a master's immediately or at the same time? I was avoiding the academic job market. So I had finished my <laughs> PhD at the end of uh, 2008. And then, but it was officially registered in the beginning of 2009. And I spent the year January to December of 2009 doing a course-based, so not a research-based master's. Um, I thought I might want to be a consultant for the wine industry in California. And I was afraid of the academic job market. But then I became <laughs> a professor in Sweden instead. I mean, fear of the academic job market is an absolutely reasonable fear. <laughs> I think it's, it's valid. It's totally valid. For the like, I mean, for the academics that I know, uh, fear of the academic job market is right up there with fear of climate change in terms of existential dread. <laughs> I mean, it's a slightly different scale, personal to global, but yes, they, they might be comparable depending on where you are in the process. Yeah. So as you said, you uh, say on your biography, and you just said a second ago that you nearly became a consultant in the California wine industry before you became a sustainability scientist instead. And you have, even in your research, you continue to have a real interest in wine and in wine agriculture and uh, how that interacts with, with climate science. You are an associate professor of sustainability science and director of PhD studies at Lund University Center for Sustainability Studies. And you devote a lot of your mental energy toward teaching. That is to say, it seems to me like teaching is a real priority for you. You've run an annual activity with students since 2014 called the We Can Fix It World Cafe, which honestly looks amazing. And I want to get back to it later on in the show. But right now, I'm bringing it up just to emphasize that teaching is a real priority for you, which is not the case for all academics. You published a study in 2017 where you concluded that uh, four high-impact things individuals in industrialized countries can do to combat climate change are don't eat meat, don't drive, don't fly, and don't have children. And the fourth of these conclusions ended up being um, controversial when you and your co-author Seth Wines did press interviews about this study. He was asked about all the findings, but you fielded a lot of questions about babies. And also, Rush Limbaugh 
personally attacked you on his show. <laughs> you have really done your homework. This is true. <laughs> and I have to say also that I feel like being personally attacked by Rush Limbaugh is a badge of honor that I, if it happened, would bring up all the time. <laughs> Hi, Rush, if you're listening. Uh, I, yeah, I don't start with that at parties, but uh, the further away it gets in the rearview mirror, the happier I am about it. Yeah, and I mean, like, I'm joking about it, especially because the specific person who attacked you is a person who, in a lot of, it's definitely in the circles that I move in, is not someone who has a lot of respect. Uh, but it can't have been nice to be attacked personally by someone on the radio. <laughs> Like, no matter who that was. I mean, that could be your next podcast idea, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were raised in California, but you're working and teaching now in Sweden. Half of your press interviews are in Swedish. So uh, do I assume that you speak Swedish? I, I do, or at least I speak what passes for Swedish and people seem to understand, yes. I, when I interviewed uh, Louise Arnaud about hydrology, she's... French and I offered that we could do the interview in French because I'm fluent in French. My Swedish is not very good, so, but actually, for the sake of listeners, maybe we should do it in English. Uh, oh, that's very considerate of you. Yeah, that sounds good. I have about maybe 10 hours of Swedish on Duolingo as it happens, but uh, not for the sake of this interview. I just happen to. That's enough that I know. I'm doing stupidly, terribly stupidly. I'm doing Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish all at the same time. <laughs> That's very confusing. It is very confusing. It's because language acquisition is entirely a uh, pointless hobby with no practical implication for me personally. So it doesn't matter <laughs> if I get it wrong. I'm just doing it as, you know, fun. Instead so of fun. playing Candy Crush, I learn Swedish. <laughs> that seems like a very uh, self-enriching and valuable activity. So I fully support that. <laughs> Good. So now it's time for Field Notes, where we talk about your specific discipline. Let's talk a little bit about sustainability science. Sustainability science is a quite a new academic discipline as far as academic disciplines go. I, as far as I can tell, no one was talking about sustainability science as an academic discipline in the year 2000. Like 2001 is, seems to be the beginning of that as a label for an academic discipline. It is a discipline that seeks to understand the character of the interactions between nature and society and to provide the knowledge needed to pursue paths that can meet fundamental human needs while preserving life support systems on the planet. In your PhD thesis, you wrote that the MO of sustainability science is to integrate natural and social sciences with policy relevant research to understand the fundamental character of the interactions between nature and society. Oh, those wide-eyed <laughs> visions from uh, my 20s. Yes, I, I guess so. I, I stand by that. <laughs> I, when I was preparing for this, I always try to look up things that people have written themselves. And if I can get a hold of, you know, your PhD thesis, I try. I will try to. But uh, it gets... It, you know, it gets less relevant the further back it was. So for when I talked to someone who, like, I did an MA last year, well, let's spend the whole conversation talking about your thesis. When I talked to someone who, like, this is a while ago now, and I've done stuff since then. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. This 
but this definition of sustainability science means that science is sustainability science is necessarily and by definition interdisciplinary, at least according to the traditional discipline breakdowns. Interactions between nature and society, that necessarily means that studying sustainability science means studying natural science, the uh, mechanics of nature and climate and all of that, and also studying and understanding the social and political realities, both global and local. Sustainability science has to be interdisciplinary, it seems like. I would agree with that. I think so. I mean, of course, um, individuals in the f within sustainability science might have their own preferences or lie to one side or another. But yes, I think as a discipline, we really try to integrate and um, be solutions oriented. And solutions oriented, that's uh, really critical to sustainability science too, as a distinction from many other academic disciplines. Traditional academic disciplines are often defined by methodology, but sustainability science is defined by the problems it seeks to address. And so as a discipline, it's goal-oriented. In theory, that means you could finish sustainability science by solving all the problems in a way that you couldn't finish uh, literature. No matter how many times you read Hamlet, you're never going to solve it and figure it out. Um, that's why science-minded people get annoyed when they have to take first-year English classes because their professor always says, no, well, <laughs> there's more. Um, <laughs> but even in physical sciences like oceanography, there's no amount of knowledge of the ocean that would say, well, we've got it. But, <laughs> but a goal-oriented discipline, in theory, if you meet the goals, the discipline would be done, right? You're right. I haven't really heard somebody express it that way before, but I think it's a very good goal for sustainability scientists to become obsolete because I would love it if uh, that would mean that we had a planet where everyone on Earth had the opportunity for a good life and nature was also thriving. So I would, I would love to achieve that goal and thereby not need any more sustainability scientists. And that doesn't mean like if the goal, if the discipline met its goal, that doesn't mean that the expertise that the individuals have wouldn't, couldn't then be redirected to other purposes and goals, right? I'm not just as a discipline, it could come, it's goal oriented, which is unusual, it seems to me, for academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And then also, uh, if the purpose of sustainability science is both to seek to understand the character of interactions and also to provide the knowledge needed to react to them or whatever, then communication seems to me like it's a central part of sustainability science. Like, everyone I've talked to so far on this show has thought personally that communicating with the public was important, uh, which... It's a, I mean, that's selection bias. You don't come on to a show to talk about your specialty if you don't think talking about your specialty to people who aren't specialists is important. Um, yeah. But in the case of sustainability science, it just seems to me like it's not just important. It's like central to the goal. It's a goal-oriented discipline. And central to the goal seems to be me to be communication. So I would agree with that analysis and I personally, I think, uh, I'm not sure that all of my colleagues, or I, I wouldn't venture to say that every sustainability scientist would see that as their goal. I do think there are some researchers in sustainability science who are trying to contribute either theoretically or just more academically. So their communication target and audience would be the traditional ones of academia. So students for teaching 
and their fellow researchers through peer-reviewed journals. Um, But I do think uh, that you're right, that as a discipline in general, we're much more oriented towards, um, or at least we aim to be. I mean, (laughs) I think I don't want to oversell how great we are at always doing it. I mean, and I've had plenty of failures on that regard myself, but we aim to work with or co-create or co-design knowledge, or at least work with stakeholders and not just have a pipeline model of creating knowledge, which we then spit out as a peer-reviewed article. And oh, by the way, maybe we put it up online or somehow make a press release or some other form that the public could access. Oh, but oops, the, the, papers behind a paywall and no one can read it anyway. I mean, uh, we, we, we are aiming at least to do things in a different way. We have to break some entrenched academic norms along the way. Right. Is there anything about the discipline as a whole that you think we haven't uh, addressed here to give people a picture of what sustainability science is? I think you did a great job. I think maybe my only reflection would be that, well, you did say that it's a new discipline and you're right. I think the first sort of foundational paper in the field came out in 2001. Um, So I guess I started my PhD two years after that. And so my PhD is not in sustainability science. Our department claims to be the first in the world to have given a PhD in sustainability science. I I don't have evidence to the contrary. I'm not 100% sure that's totally true, but I I think that is the case. So basically, I've been, um, my own professional development has been happening kind of simultaneously along with the field. And for me, it's interesting to look back and reflect on that and see that, you know, at the beginning, I think there was so much um, emphasis on how new and fundamentally different this discipline would be. And, and it was trying to do something truly different. And I don't know how much we've accomplished or if we're really achieving that goal. I mean, um, or it, at least it remains an important driving goal. But there are a lot of, uh, I mean, it seems to me like the discipline has become more like a traditional academic discipline than I imagined it would be when it was starting out. At some point, you start to wonder, well, is this still actually different or you know has this become a traditional discipline like any other so how i mean hmm is that a bad thing when it becomes a discipline like any other like is the bad that a bad thing for the discipline not necessarily i'm i'm not opposed to it i'm sort of agnostic about it like i'm not uh, mourning the passing. And I mean, I think it's healthy and good that a a discipline would evolve over time. It would be weird if it didn't actually. Um, I guess it's just a question of, well, one thing I think is that um, if you're spending a lot of energy on defining who and what you are relative to others and what you're not, then maybe you have less energy to spend on actually doing stuff, (laughs) you know, so it can, it, it, maybe it's good that we're moving on from this very internally directed um, discussion and getting on with the business of doing the the work that we want to do. What you were saying a second ago about traditional academic disciplines and uh, the structure of academia and paywalls and the cliche of the ivory tower, like, is that what you're, what you're thinking of as the things that are would be a real problem for this discipline if it continues to entrench along those lines? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think this is a broader conversation happening in academia, certainly not just in our world, but um, 
you know, there are basically, I think, to, to achieve the goals of sustainability science, which you've outlined very nicely, to actually solve some of these problems for people and nature in the real world. We might need to have different um, metrics of success, not just number of academic publications, but contacts with farmers or with members of parliament or other you know, target groups. And it might be more about um, different ways of working. And maybe academia hasn't fully caught up with that. I think I, where I am, I think, is really supportive. Um, our department is very supportive of, of those kind of activities and valuing those kind of contributions. But as a whole, academia, you know, still kind of exists within these traditional structures of faculties or schools and promotion and tenure and blah, blah. So that's probably part having those institutional um, incentives probably affects how the discipline develops. Right. And that, I mean, seems to be very relevant to what we've already said about uh, sustainability science as goal oriented, Mm -hmm. because if you meet the, if you meet the uh, institutional goals of academia, but not the discipline specific goals of sustainability science, then you might be successful as an academic, but not actually doing what the discipline is professes to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now it's time for You're the Expert, where we focus on your specializations. And I want to start by talking just a little bit about land resources. One of your master's degrees has land resources on it as uh, the words that are connected to it. Um, (laughs) Land and water are both finite resources. So land resources as a study focuses on understanding and strategizing the best use of land. You have really emphasized the use of land for food production in your research. And currently, worldwide, we're not using land very effectively. uh, And that's part of what's behind ecological crises. There is land, there is food even being produced, but the purposes behind what land's used for what food and the use and distribution of those resources are not optimal. (laughs) Um, And one thing you've been studying really recently is the idea of urban forestry for food, planting trees in cities that not only mitigate carbon, but also produce food, which sounds like a win-win scenario to me. Land resources is the study of the use of land. Is that right? Sounds good to me. I mean, I'm not even sure land resources is really a field or a discipline. It's the name of the program that I studied for my master's. Um, So I think you did a great job of defining it. Um, Just to put it in context, exactly as you said, we live on a planet with finite amount of land. I mean, most of the planet is covered by oceans. I think, I don't know if it's Mark Twain or someone said, you know, buy land, they're not making any more of it. So that's just becoming more and more true as we're more and more people who have more consumption and more demands. We use land to grow food, both for us and for animals that we eat. Actually, we use much more land, both to graze and to grow food for animals than to feed humans directly. And that's actually responsible for most of the impacts, the negative impacts to water pollution and air and climate pollution from our agriculture system. So that's something I look a lot at. We also want land to help us solve the problem of climate change. So Mm -hmm. having 
um, ecosystems, healthy, intact ecosystems, wetlands and forests and grasslands where the plants take up carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in vegetation or in the soils so that it removes carbon and stores carbon away from the atmosphere where it's causing warming and causing problems. We also, of course, want habitat for nature, for species to live and to have healthy systems that are providing us with clean air and water. So we have a lot of demands for land and we have a limited amount of land. There's also increasing demand for bioenergy and um, so many, many different ways we can use land. And I think land resources would be looking at those trade-offs and trying to find uh, good solutions that meet human demands and leave enough space for nature. And like the those different demands for land are sometimes in con- like I'm just interested in how those demands for land are in conflict with each other, even within like an ecological framework that uh, using land for for climate mitigation, which is to say trees, as you said, trees take carbon dioxide and put it into carbon in the soil and carbon in the soil is fine in terms of the greenhouse effect. That's a solution. Mm-hmm. But land being used for trees, for forestry, uh, that isn't land being used for food production, can cause different problems, right? Shifting one problem into another problem. Yeah, that's true. And so for every land use, you have a series of trade-offs. There's a nice way to visualize this in a flower diagram where you can, the petals of the flower, if you picture a daisy, the petals of the daisy would be how much of all of these different benefits that we might want from land are we getting. And if we have a healthy, natural, intact forest, for example, that's great at water purification, it's great at taking up carbon, but it's not providing us any food, it's not providing any timber if it's not harvested um, maybe it's nice for recreation and cultural appreciation, whereas, you know, an intensive monoculture of um, high input cereal crops doesn't do so great on these other scales, but is extremely efficient at producing a lot of food. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, you know, is that there's there's a debate in this field about between land sparing or land sharing. Hmm. So should you intensify land and use it as efficiently as possible on as small a footprint as possible to produce as much food or other fiber, other products as possible? That means you rely on a lot of external inputs. So artificial fertilizers, irrigation water, um, it tends to be a less resilient system, more of a monoculture. Or is it better to have land sharing where you try to integrate more ecological principles and polycultures and diversification into a food production system, for example. So maybe per hectare, you might get lower yields, but there might be more natural predators or or insects and pollinators. You might have more habitat, um, less reliance on fossil fuels or on other inputs. So uh, this is an active debate. It seems to me, based on the things I've read from you, that you're on the second side, you are inclined to the second side of that debate. Is that right? Generally, yes. I think more fundamentally, I mean, the, the biggest solution that I see for using land better is to stop eating animals or to eat right. many fewer animals. Because basically, the last 10 years, we have so many studies showing that this is 
the intensive system of animal production that we have today, where we grow crops that people could eat and instead feed them to animals who are confined in a high density situation where their waste becomes a toxic pollutant. Um, this is a really bad way to grow food and it causes all kinds of problems for human health, antibiotic resistance. Um, it's miserable for the animals. It's unhealthy for our diets in terms of um, Western diets are eating a lot more meat than what's recommended for health. And it's a big problem for the climate. It's about a quarter in total. Agriculture is about a quarter of climate emissions. And the biggest single contributor there is meat, especially beef. So a lot of solutions come from changing our diets and eating less meat. This is one of, as I've already mentioned, the four uh, high impact effects that your 2017 study recommended is eat more plants or eat less meat. Uh, two ways of saying the same thing. <laughs> yep. Is there anything else about uh, land resources that you think we haven't covered or, or paid attention to that you want to before we move on? I can just mention one thing that we've been working on for a while now is issues of land ownership or land tenure. Right. And this um, phenomenon that started in the early 2000s of large-scale land acquisitions, sometimes called land grabbing, where often foreign either governments or businesses would invest in and actually purchase land or lease it for 99 years or a long-term lease in mostly developing countries. It's been particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's been a really interesting phenomenon to study of how land becomes not just a becomes a financial resource mm -hmm. and, and this idea of virtual land that you could kind of export the land. Obviously, you're not physically picking up and, and shipping around a, a continent or something, but, you know, using land for countries um, as a source of investment or as a source of biofuels production, for example, or food crop. We're, we're doing some new work now um, that shows that a lot of the land that's used for those purposes does not, in fact, produce food. Right. So um, it's often used as an argument for increasing food security, especially in countries that need better food security. But um, unfortunately, that hasn't really been demonstrated that, that to have that effect. Right. I have like this vague memory, just when you talk about moving land around, I have this vague memory and I can't cite it i don't know whether it's even real but i feel like i read that uh a lot of the sahara the sand is literally exported uh to make beaches elsewhere oh um that i don't know directly i did just read a paper about the potential to export sand from Greenland, which, which I thought was completely crazy <laughs> because uh, the sand in Greenland is being exposed because of climate change. So the glaciers in Greenland are melting and with them, they're um, bringing a lot of sand out into the ocean. And so I just thought this is like completely backwards thinking to think, oh, great, here's a new resource in the Arctic. Why don't we send some fossil fuel driven ships up there to mine and export it around the world and then we'll use it to replenish beaches that are being washed away by sea level rise. Oh, gee, why is the sea level rising? Gosh, it's from climate change, which is, you know, what, oh, you know, it's just like failing to, to diagnose the problem correctly, in my view, to really see the root of the problem and actually tackle that, basically stop burning fossil fuels. It's like one of those uh, so much meat. Sylvester the Cat cartoons where he's fishing and he hooks himself on the back of his own fishing rod. <laughs> yes. So one of the other things that you've 
spent a lot of time uh, that you've really focused on is wine. We touched on this a little bit, but let's actually uh, talk about wine a bit. Your specific focus has often been on wine. I want to get more to that. But first, on our way there, I just want to remark that uh, viticulture is a representative. It's a specific crop with specific details, but for everyone who, unlike you and me, is not an expert, I just think it's useful to remember that someone could do, and other people have done, similar studies on other crops, and the simplified, generalizable lesson is climate change really matters to agriculture. And that might seem obvious, but my experience is that a lot of urban dwellers just never actually think about where their food comes from. And then to that, viticulture seems like a case in point about how climate change, climate interests and economic interests are identical for a lot of the world. Wine's a big industry in California, for example. Changes in climate mean changes to the industry. And there's a misconception, especially in the right-wing U.S., uh, that economic and ecological interests are at odds. So the idea is like, okay, sure, we could do things for the climate, but it would hurt our industry. And there are real people with jobs, families, and bills and mortgages and grocery bills that they need to pay today. And we can't prioritize a future theoretical benefit for future generations over a tangible benefit for real people today. But what a focus on viticulture makes clear is that for a lot of people, like that's a false narrative for a lot of people with families and bills to pay and mortgages, like they work in the wine industry and their immediate economic needs depend on that industry. And then they go and buy groceries and the grocery stores, economic stability relies on the wine industry and the economic and ecological needs aren't in conflict. They're identical. Is that, does that sound fair to you? Yeah, I think it was very well put. And I, I really agree. I think, um, for me, I got interested in studying wine because I grew up on my parents' vineyard in Sonoma, about an hour north of San Francisco. And it was, you know, it's the major um, economic interest and industry in the town and actually the county where I'm from. And it's just kind of in the air that you breathe and, and the culture that I grew up in. So it was, and it's, as you said, very climate sensitive. People have recognized this for a long time and aficionados or enthusiasts who enjoy wine appreciate that they can experience the climate and environment from different places around the world by tasting wine that was grown in, in mm -hmm. uh, different regions. So we know that wine is very climate sensitive and uh, there's actually harvest records from France going back to the 1300s that can have been used to reconstruct climate. So before we had thermometers, because we know how grapes ripen, we can uh, deduce what the temperature was like from how long it took for those grapes to ripen hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So there's a very tight connection between climate and wine. And Interesting. Um, many, I mean, as you say, food depends on climate. Our, if, if you go to the, the, the international agreement on climate change, the latest iteration of which is the Paris Agreement from 2015, but it's part of a United Nations process that goes back several decades. The fundamental goal of that whole process is to avoid dangerous climate change. And what's defined as dangerous, one of the three things is humans' ability to produce food. Right. So, I mean, this is like really fundamental that we rely, humanity relies on nature to enable us to produce food um, and the climate is really fundamental. And we know that a warming climate makes it harder to 
produce enough food in the case of cereals and to produce enough delicious food in the case of wine. <laughs> so in specific about wine, wine is grown, not made, and you can only sort of kind of mitigate bad growth after the fact. So the climate is like central. This is why I know I, I might get people listening. I might hurt people listening to this, uh, their feelings. And you can just have no comment if you don't want to uh, hurt people's feelings. But I think the only time homemade wine is worth drinking is if your home is a winery. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if you grow up in Sonoma, you, there's plenty of good homemade wine uh, around. I I won't comment about further afield efforts. So, but like... No matter what you do after the fact, the point is the grapes matter a lot. A lot. And that's uh, the length of the growing season, for example, has a direct impact on wine because it get, if it gets warmer earlier in the season, then the grapes develop more sugar and less acid. And so the way to counter that as a grower is to pick the grapes earlier, but then they're younger and they haven't developed as complex a flavor. So a little bit of warming in the climate of California doesn't necessarily mean wine stops being made. It means that it stops being as good. Uh, and then we go all the way from that to the other extreme of wildfires that destroy wineries and threaten lives. So like everything from extreme and crisis, but all the way to the other of like, you know, it matters to people who sell wine and people who buy wine. It matters that like you can't get the good wine anymore. <laughs> It definitely matters. The way that I think about it is the the goal should be to manage the changes that we can't avoid hmm. and avoid the changes that we can't manage. Hmm. So there are a lot of efforts to adapt the wine industry to climate change. And there's a lot of options to do that if climate change is itself kept under control and, and um, we succeed in stopping climate change from getting out of hand and becoming dangerous, as I said. So, you know, with small amounts of temperature changes, there are adaptations that growers can make in the vineyard. They can um, arrange the leaves and prune them and trellis them differently so that they provide more shade to the grapes. That cools the local microclimate and has an, helps maintain the good compounds in the grapes that will end up in the wine. Um, irrigation is an option. Changing varieties is an option towards um, warmer suited varieties, but maintaining the same vineyard footprint, because that's really important. I think something uh, really important is that, you know, as we were just talking about, we have this limited amount of land. For a lot of reasons, it's important that we don't further expand cropland. Mm. We need to make do with the cropland that we have and make it work for um our demands now because there's so many other demands on land as we were discussing. So it's much better to keep vineyards where they currently are um, with some warming, potentially changing varieties could be in order, but it's a bad idea to be planning to uh, ad quote unquote adapt to climate change by, you know, running northward at an unknown rate of however many hundreds of kilometers per decade. You know, I mean, that that's just not going to work. We can't outrun catastrophic climate change. There was a, I just finished teaching a course on Frankenstein mm. and one of the characters in Frankenstein thinks that uh, in the North Pole, there's like a warm oasis, tropical oasis, okay. uh, which by the way, was not that unusual a belief in the uh, late 18th century, but oh. I'm just saying like, 
well, maybe there will be a tropical oasis in the north. No, that's a terrible, that is not a solution, is the point. That's that's true. And I think I've actually been, I appreciate that in Sweden, because there is a small but growing wine industry in Sweden. There are about 250 producers here. Um, and in some places that are sort of at the northern limit of wine production currently, some people have been very cavalier about saying, oh, yes, you know, we're benefiting from climate change and isn't this great? And I think the attitude in, in Sweden, you know, disregarding, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is actually a global disaster and it, it's not made up for the fact if uh, we have a little bit more Pinot Noir in southern England or something. Um, but the people that I've spoken with, the growers in Sweden, are much more nuanced in saying, you know, we want we don't want to have climate warming that's an unstable climate and we don't know how to hmm. grow the best grapes in that case. What we want to do is develop with the possibilities that we have now and figure out what works here for our terroir, the conditions that we have, how do we um, best adapt our growing practices to the environment here to produce something that has a, a sense of place and a character from, from the, from Sweden. So like, I mean, it's, it's so self-evidently short-sighted that like, oh, now we can grow a crop that we couldn't before. Ten years from now, we won't be able to again. <laughs> like, why? It's a big problem, yeah. And the, I mean, the latest, um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is the um, group of scientists that assembles all the latest science and synthesizes and puts it together. And another, what, the second of the sign of dangerous climate change is that ecosystems should be able to adapt naturally to human-caused climate change. And we're currently really exceeding that because species can't migrate fast enough. Um, you get breakdown between, for example, when a flower would bloom and when its pollinator would be there or migration of birds. And I mean, all of these systems hang together. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's it's not a good idea to um, pick out this one you know, potential benefit on yeah, outweighed by thousands of, you know, really serious negative consequences. I used to live in, uh, speaking of local wines, I used to live in Niagara Falls and there's lots of good wine being made in Niagara Falls. And I used to go to the wine store, the LCBO in Ontario is where wine is sold and like find local wine. And then now I live in Newfoundland. Uh, and I went, when I first moved here, I went like, there was a local wine section. I was like, local wines? Let's see. And it's like blueberry wine partridge berry wine oh, <laughs> no wow. grapes uh -huh. there's no grapes here <laughs> no grapes anyway is there anything you think we should be talking about about uh viniculture and wine that we haven't touched on i think just a terminology clarification that viticulture is the growing of vitis vinifera that's the grapevine the plants um in the vineyard and then viniculture um is making the wine from the grapes in the winery right okay and i've been like using them as if they're the same word uh maybe but that's yeah, a small <laughs> point viticulture growing the what's the vita uh, vitis vinifera vitis vinifera and viniculture is making the wine yes all right so Let's move to uh, pedagogy just for a second. It seems like your a lot of your academic interest is on the science of climate, but a lot of your academic time is also spent on teaching. And you've taught, you know, academic writing workshops, and you've helped with course design, and you are an advocate for student-led learning. That seems to me 
to be philosophically connected to problem-based research. Like it seems to me like student-led learning is a pedagogical equivalent to goal-oriented research that you have students want to learn, know something. And so they're the ones who are driving the pedagogy. Yeah, I like that reflection. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Um, I think in my teaching, I've been influenced by experience and colleagues and um, discussions with colleagues, but also some courses that I've taken for professional development. And one thing that really stuck with me was uh, something that we learned in one of these pedagogy courses, which was this student-led or student-centered focus. And it really made a lot of sense to me. And they talked about the development of a teacher going from progressing from focusing on the material and yourself to focusing on the student. Hmm. And I definitely related to this because when I was first uh, in charge of courses and developing lectures, it was all about, you know, my slides and myself and, oh, was that pause too long? And I sound like an idiot. And how is it me that's up here supposed to be teaching this stuff and, you know, imposter <laughs> syndrome. And, um, and I realized, I mean, it, it, it's nice to have more confidence from having done things before and knowing better what works and what doesn't. And also knowing that despite my very best efforts, nothing is always going to work perfectly. So accepting a higher degree of, you know, uh, failure or room for learning and improvement next time um, within reason, but also really realizing, I mean, my my mission and my purpose as a teacher is for the students to benefit and learn. I mean, it's not about me and how great my PowerPoint slides are. It's really about what they do and and how what they work with and what they can do at the end of the course. So, I mean, trying to work backwards from it's the course learning outcomes or objectives to say, okay, if we want the students at the end of the course to be able to, you know, to know these things and to be able to do these things, what learning experiences do they need to support them in developing those skills and that knowledge to achieve that? I mean, uh, that said, my PowerPoint slides are like really nice. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're amazing. <laughs> One of the things you do that I want to talk for a second about is the We Can Fix It World Cafe. This is a three-hour activity where students gather information and present climate solutions. I love this as a pedagogical approach. It seems like such a, I mean, it seems like a great experience for students. And it also seems like, it, 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 I love it. <laughs> I think it sounds great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's all up on the website and you're very welcome to use it or adapt it as you like. How have you found students responding to that? I think it's generally been positive. It came originally from a student critique, actually, hmm. which was, that I was um, too didactic in my kind of technocratic focus of what climate solutions would look like. Hmm. And so meaning that I just kind of uh, had a pretty narrow and party line view about, you know, here's what it will take to fix it. We should just do this. And I really appreciated that critique and took it on board. And, and the next year I, I thought through, or actually that student came to my office hours and we had a discussion and that um, really inspired me to think of other ways to try and approach this. And so what we've done since is gather these solutions and um, give the students, assign them in groups to analyze and then compare and use some of the frameworks from the class to assess these potential solutions. And you know, one point is that they see 
first of all, there are already so many solutions out there. Mm-hmm. So it's not a lack of solutions that's stopping us. There are, it's more about implementing or getting people to actually just start doing stuff. Um, and it's also, there is no one silver bullet. So sometimes the solutions are, are really in conflict with each other or take a very different approach. And I think the students appreciate, you know, seeing that and talking through those differences and seeing, it makes them sort of, define for themselves what their own values and preferences are in, ter- in, in terms of what kind of solutions they would favor or want to work on, but also see this broader landscape of, okay, there's actually, you know, a whole range of solutions out there. I have been like, yeah, what I love about this, this pedagogical approach is that it gives some real agency to the students, not only for their learning, but even for the solutions. And that like one of, I think, it seems to me the problems with climate solutions so far, like basically if you say there's lots of solutions out there, but if those solutions were solutions, the problem would be solved. That is to say, uh, it can be a theoretical solution that would work, but if people aren't doing it, it's not a solution, right? Like, Hmm. yeah. So we have to put it into practice to make it a solution. Yeah. So until it's put into wide practice, it is a, possible solution but not an actual one because the problem still exists and one of the things i love about this as a pedagogical approach is it's one of the things that is in danger of alienating people from climate solutions is this sense that a sense of futility and that comes partly from a sense of lack of agency like who cares if i i mean and we'll get to this because you address this quite directly in the uh high impact effects but who cares if i use high efficiency bulbs when uh exxon mobil is going to completely dwarf any positive effect with my negative effect it feels so futile and it feels like i have no real agency and if i don't have any agency then like well why do i bother why i drive to work uh i could not drive to work but my neighbor's gonna drive to work and exxon mobile is gonna produce more carbon then it's a drop in the bucket. Why am I going to even slightly uh, inconvenience myself if it's not actually going to make any difference? And one of the things that uh, this pedagogical approach is it puts solutions actually in the hands of students, both theoretically and also practically, so that they're thinking about things instead of, uh, I mean, it's still problem-oriented, but... Sustainability science isn't problem-oriented, it's solution-oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I really like this as an approach to give students a sense of solutions. Yeah. And of agency and of of ownership of solutions. Well, that makes me really happy. Thank you so much. Is there anything about uh, pedagogy that you think we haven't addressed that you would like to before we move on? I can mention that one thing I've really focused on as a teacher is on writing skills, developing and Mm. being explicit about teaching writing skills, because I realized um, quite depressingly, when I looked back on my own education career, which I really enjoyed and appreciated, but what did I actually learn? What could I actually remember from spending uh, 
I think at one point I counted as a 24 years in education. It was a really long time. There were surprisingly few things that really stuck with me that I could concretely say, I remember learning this or, you know, this teacher taught me this thing. It all added up, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had some really inspiring teachers personally. But when I thought about that, it, it also made me realize, yeah, it made me become less sort of memorization or fact-based in, in what I want the students to do and more about um, using skills. And mm-hmm. so writing is just obviously central to academic life. I mean, we publish articles, but we also are increasingly, in, and I aim to do much more of this writing for a public audience. And that's a way to reach people that you know will never sit in our classrooms or um, come to our public lectures or whatever. And even if most of our students, our master's students, uh, don't go on to careers in academia, but whatever career they have, they need to write well. So we focus a lot on um, making and supporting arguments with evidence. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of academic writing and really trying to take away the mystery from that and break it down and um, give tools like rubrics and sample essays and peer writing uh, program to help students learn and experiment with this process uh, yeah, those are some examples of yeah trying to emphasize the the importance of writing and let them develop that skill. As a literature scholar, I definitely agree about the importance of writing. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about one of the things um, that is associated with your name. Uh, although I understand that it uh, you weren't the first to articulate it in this way. What is the five points, five things people need to, climate change 101, five points. Um, yeah. And the five points, let's go through the five points quickly. So the five points are climate is warming, it's us, we're sure, it's bad, we can fix it. So point one, the climate is warming. What's important to understand there is first that climate isn't weather. This feels like a... Uh, stumbling block for a lot of people that warm climate isn't weather a warm day is not the same thing or a cold day is not the same thing as the climate is warming and climate means the uh like long-term weather patterns so the climate is warming does not mean we had a hot day today it means over the past five years the average is higher than the average was over the five years before that. Yes. So climate is the long-term average of weather, or you can say climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. Hmm. So you can, you can say, okay, I, in the Northern hemisphere, I can confidently expect that the average July day is going to be a lot warmer than the average January day. But you know, can I predict with perfect accuracy, what will the temperature be on July 12th, 2020? No, I can't. Um, But we have a general understanding of how the climate system as a whole works. So it's all driven by the sun to begin with, and the oceans and atmosphere are moving around to redistribute that energy. And that gives us a good understanding of, of the general patterns. And we know from many, many, many independent lines of evidence from across the globe and from beyond it, from satellites, that it's warmed about one degree Celsius uh, in the last few decades compared with pre-industrial times. Right. And yeah, 
So there's some really great visualizations of that out there now. The warming stripes by Ed Hawkins have really had a moment of late. There are now on flip-flops and leggings and all kinds of uh, um, somebody's knit a sweater and everything. So that that makes a really striking visualization where the last, I think, 150 years of data each year is represented as a stripe of color and it starts off really blue and it ends up really red. So when we look back over time, the trend is really striking and clear. And I, also the part of the climate is warming, warming is present tense. It's not that the climate has warmed or that it will warm it, although also, but it is warming. This is happening now. Yeah. Yeah. So the 1970s were the last decade where the average temperature was below a historical average. So every decade since then, basically none of my students have ever lived in an average planet Earth. Right. They were born into a planet Earth that is warmer than average and they will live the rest of their lives in one that is above average. And the question is, because we're already this one degree above average, and the question we face now is, how, what do we do to invest in and slow down and, and ultimately stop this warming and stabilize the climate at a temperature that lets us continue to have a good quality of life and protect nature? And then point two, it's us. Human action, past and present, is the cause of climate change. I talked about this quite a bit in my interview with Arctic climatologist Jennifer Francis. Uh, she said she her specific evidence of that was she said we have computer models that can predict temperatures based on all kinds of factors and when we plug them in they show us the temperature and it follows historical it can predict without knowing you know how the temperature changes and then around the 70s they stop being accurate unless we enter carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh actual data rather than predicted data and then it starts tracking what's historical and so if we take out the carbon data it's taking a fact it's the computer model follows all the other factors and it tracks what the temperature would have been if the carbon dioxide wasn't higher than it naturally would be and we can see from that that 20 actually we're in a cycle of warming and cooling and we're actually in a cycle of cooling right now so the climate should be cool cooler than average right now and we know we're that it's us because carbon dioxide in the atmosphere add it to the computer model and now it tracks with reality yep that's certainly one of the many independent lines of evidence that tell us that the warming now is due to humans and are especially burning fossil fuels another is uh, the isotopic signature of the carbon that's in the atmosphere so we can actually measure the composition of that carbon and see that it comes from plants that have been uh, buried, grew a long time ago in the Carboniferous and another, you know, 400 million years ago um, and became buried and over time with temperature and pressure have become coal, oil and gas. And those have a particular um, composition that we can detect in the atmosphere. So we see that that composition has been changing over time. So it's, models are one really important way to study the climate, but there's also lots of observational evidence about the distribution of the CO2 in the atmosphere. We now have sensitive enough instruments that we can measure. It's, it's globally well mixed, but it varies by a few parts per million over the globe. And we can see that the pattern of CO2 
fits with where the human sources right. of emissions are. The temperature throughout the height of the atmosphere fits the pattern we would expect if the warming is coming from our activities at the surface and not externally. For example, we see the oceans becoming more acidic, and that's because they're taking up some of the carbon from the atmosphere and it's becoming carbonic acid in the ocean. So there are lots of ways that we know it's us. And that, I mean, I feel like I don't, we, your third point, we're sure we just covered that. Like the, there's lots of ways is how we're sure <laughs> that what you said about lots of independent lines of verification, uh, I feel like is worth really stressing again, that maybe one, maybe Jennifer Francis's computer models are wrong, but throw them out. We still are sure. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And that that's important. And another important aspect of we're sure is understanding the scientific process and how ideas and hypotheses get tested and developed and through refinement and publication over time. And in science, there's really a strong um, incentive or encouragement to try and prove something right. wrong. So in other words, you have to overcome this, you know, kind of uh, innocent until proven guilty. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, but like uh, guilty until proven innocent is more like the the status. That's what statistics do, right? Statistics are a, a method of um, making us be very skeptical about our data and only saying, okay, this seems like a signal and not just noise when the evidence is really strong. So through all these independent lines of evidence that have been analyzed by thousands of different people and published in tens of thousands of different papers, there's just this overwhelming weight of scientific evidence. And the, the language you can see from these IPCC reports that summarize and, and synthesize the state of climate science has gotten much stronger over the last few decades. So, I mean, at one point it was something like the balance of evidence suggests humans are having a noticeable activity on the climate or no, notice human activity is having a noticeable impact on the climate. I'm not looking at the quotes right. now, so this might be, but you know, roughly it's something like this. And then now it's, you know, it's unequivocal that it's warming and um, that it, the most of the, or almost essentially all of the warming is due to human activity. So this is sometimes, um, there have been meta studies that look at all the scientific publications on this question and they find somewhere between 97 and 99% agreement. So it's really, really strong evidence. And then like, it feels like it's worth uh, stressing too for, for listeners who aren't in an academic system that that's both the structure of science. And like, this is what I've, I've said to my kids that like, you can't prove that something uh, is the case what you can do is prove, try your really, really, really best that it's not. And even after trying your really best that it's not, if you still can't prove that it's not, that means it probably is true. Um, but uh, so like, do you have a, you, the science is all about trying to disprove a hypothesis. I started this, by the way, I'm digressing, but my daughter came home and was like, someone said that my shoes are boy shoes because they're black. Oh no. Like instead of pink. And I was like, well, let you know that in science, you think of a hypothesis, and if you can think of one example <laughs> that's a counterexample, then your hypothesis is wrong. Right. So let's have the hypothesis that black shoes are boy shoes. Can you think of one example that proves that's wrong? Yes. Well, <laughs> nice. that hypothesis must be false. Um, <laughs> well done. But also just in terms of the structure of academia, that like there's a 
I talked about this also in my conversation with Jennifer Francis, but I feel like it's worth stressing again that like there's conspiracy theorists who say like there's a conspiracy in academia, all these papers, they're like colluding together to present an idea that they all agree on beforehand. And anyone who's had any experience with academia knows publishing a peer reviewed academic journal, like uh, one of the, one of the things that can make academia kind of toxic is that peer reviewers tend to be jerks. <laughs> they tend to be <laughs> very critical. Reviewer two. Reviewer two is like a, a cliche, a meme in academia that reviewer yeah. two is always, well, I didn't like it because this and your findings fail to take into it. And like, that's such a common experience in all of academia that if uh, peer reviewed science has a very, very high bar of being persuasive. And the people who read it, they have a vested professional interest in poking holes in your theories. And if they can't, that means it's solid. <laughs> exactly. I mean, at, at this point, and even several decades ago, this has been true for really a long time. I mean, the first academic paper that calculated the effect of warming if we continued burning coal was published by a Swede in 1896. So 100 and almost 25 years ago. Um, so this has been around for a long time. Certainly, if somebody could disprove this or had evidence to the contrary that the warming we're experiencing now was from some other reason, they would be a rock star. That would be a, a groundbreaking paradigm shifting paper. So um, the evidence just isn't there to support any other conclusion. And like what we said to, to really, really stress this, everything you've said and we've said together about like the the downsides of academic disciplines, someone could manipulate all those downsides and like be a rock star. You could get yourself a, you know, position uh, in a faculty that are really hard to come by if you could prove persuasively that this wasn't, if that evidence was there, someone would make it because it would be great for their career. <laughs> That's true. And I think, I mean, the final nail in the coffin of this idea that there's this grand conspiracy is, have you ever met academics <laughs> where it's impossible to coordinate or organize? I mean, uh, yeah, we have trouble like agreeing on, you know, when should we meet for lunch or like, or what are we going to, what what will we have for our seminar next week? So, I mean, imagining this like grand global conspiracy is really impossible. And then point four, it's bad. Yeah, I've said that it seems to me that failure to act on climate change has to come from one of three causes. People don't believe the problem is real, or they don't believe it's fixable, or they don't want to fix the problem because compounding the problem is more clearly in their immediate personal interest than fixing it is. I feel like all these first four points address problem number one, that they don't believe the problem is real. Or if they believe the problem's real, they don't believe it's that bad, like it's uh, hmm. you know, maybe it's warming, but it's not really that big a deal. This is like the, you know, our imaginary straw uh, winery in Sweden. It's like, well, maybe we can grow some, or in Northern England, maybe we can grow some Pinot Noir in Northern England and that'll be great. And the point of it's bad, <laughs> right? Bad for humans, bad for the economy, for culture, for animals for plants for uh it's bad but it feels uh, here's my my doubt or my i 
I have a hard time believing that anyone with any intellectual honesty actually disputes these first four. That the climate's warming, uh, we're sure, it's us, we're sure, it's bad. I, I just have a hard time believing that anyone with any intellectual honesty actually doubts those four or sincerely disputes them. It seems like there's denial based on fear, though, an after-the-fact rationalization of inaction that really comes from people don't believe it's fixable or they don't want to fix it because compounding the problem is more clearly in their immediate personal interest than fixing it is. And that's where my favorite part of this five point is point five. We can fix it. This is the part I love. <laughs> um, you've been quoted in interviews saying you don't think guilt is helpful. Uh, I, okay, I don't know why I keep talking about Frankenstein when we're talking about climate change, but I, <laughs> in my course on Frankenstein, I talked about how in that book, guilt is a poor motivator for action. People feel really bad. Characters in that book feel really bad. And it just means they torture themselves and feel worse. And it doesn't mean they do something. So it seems like in all of your research, you have a very optimistic approach to climate science. Optimistic, not just emotionally, but strategically. There are solutions. Let's do them. I think that's a really good summary. I think my, my diagnosis of... Um... How, you know, my diagnosis is there's, it is impossible and should not be given any airspace to doubt the first three points. There's just no evidence for it. Right. And it's been so, it's warming, it's us, we're sure. There's no need to debate those things. That question has been settled by science and that's the appropriate place to settle it is in all these boring peer-reviewed papers and um, the accretion of evidence. So yeah, there's there's no reason to have a discussion about that. I think it's bad. There is just overwhelming evidence that it's bad. And I think we're getting better maybe at communicating it's bad. There have been a few recent papers and studies that kind of synthesize this. And when you, yes, there are some specific cases where, okay, maybe timber production might go up in a certain situation where the climate would warm, or there might be, you know, specific um, benefits to certain sectors or maybe Arctic shipping routes are going to open up. So, um, But when you compare this on the overwhelming comprehensive damages and harms that climate change is already causing and will cause to a really intolerable degree if we don't stop it, it's, it's just not a question. I mean, is Arctic shipping uh, routes worth displacing millions or potentially billions of people with sea level rise? Is it worth lives lost to increasing extreme events? Is it worth increased rates in extinction of species? I mean, the, the benefits are so few and so paltry compared with the, uh, the cost, not just in dollars, although that is clearly it makes economic sense to fix climate change, but in sort of human and um, values terms, it's incalculable, the, the benefit to fixing it. So I think the we can fix it. Um, it's just really necessary. And I think to do that, my view on it is to engage people in getting involved. First of all, sometimes from the media, it can be discouraging and feel like nobody cares about this issue or people aren't informed. That's really not true. The majority of people 
know that climate change is happening and are worried about it for themselves and their families, as well as for future generations and for vulnerable populations. But it's increasingly the case, and this is changing fast, um, people now recognize this is a problem here and now. This isn't a distant future problem. We're not talking about future generations. I plan on being alive in 2050 personally, um, but we're already seeing the impacts of climate change today. So we don't have to wait anymore to, to know that they're happening and that they're bad and serious. It's a, it feels like uh, the paltry benefits compared to the uh, drastic downsides. I get hung up sometimes on that because it feels like it is in observable human nature to accept paltry benefits uh, <laughs> to in exchange for enormous downsides. And I think of, like, uh, recently in Newfoundland, they're trying to establish uh, speed limits around the island because uh, boats moving very, very quickly kill right whales who are on the verge of extinction. Mm. And the pushback against this is, yeah, but then I'll be late. <laughs> right <laughs> but it's a genuine pushback and it, it seems so ridiculous to me until i like well the same exact argument people don't really make the intellectual argument but the same exact like speed limits on the road the speed limit is uh 100 we all know uh that driving at night with your headlights if you're driving on a highway and you're driving 100 and an obstacle comes up in front, the light doesn't go far enough, mm. you're going to run headfirst into it. Mm. The, the uh, risk is intense, unavoidable, and uh, enormous. And the benefit is like, what, I'll have an extra 10 minutes in my commute. But people still choose that paltry benefit. Yeah, and we really need to listen to the better angels of our nature and find ways that help us do that because the benefits of solving climate change are so enormous and so much drastically better. I mean, one study showed that essentially given predictions for economic growth and development, if we fix climate change, it will take something like three years longer to increase the global economy 10 times. So in other words, in 2100, we will be slightly less than 10 times richer than we are now and have a safe climate. Right. This is like a, such a paltry sum compared with the, the benefits that it offers. So, yes, I mean, we all know that, uh, yeah, we should eat well and get exercise and get to sleep on time. And yet we don't do all those things that we know are good for us each and every day. So, I mean, we need some help sometimes in kickstarting uh, motivation and getting a supportive environment and context around us that supports making better choices through policies and incentives and so on. But um, a lot of this, because it is us, because we are the ones causing climate change, and that's especially true, about half of climate pollution comes from 10% of people right. on earth. And so that's um, those of us you know, our high impact choices, which I know we'll get to, if it's those of us who would have an option to buy a plane ticket or to drive in a car, that's not most people on earth, right. actually. So it makes sense that those of us who are doing those things have a, a big responsibility. And I think, you know, coming back to we can fix it. And some of your questions about, you know, what's stopping us from fixing it? I think personally, we need to have two things, we need to have a sense of 
harm, that it's actually wrong to continue to emit greenhouse gases and burn fossil fuels because it's causing real harm to us today, to people in the future, um, to the species and the environment. It's actually a really bad thing to do. So it's not just an inevitable, acceptable negative externality. It's it's actually something unacceptable that should become socially um, ostracized. And then we need to feel responsibility, meaning we have the ability to respond. We can actually choose to make changes. And some of those choice, changes, we have the power to make ourselves today. Some of those changes need to happen at different structural right. levels. Let's get to that, uh, the high impact actions for climate mitigation. The four I mentioned earlier, the four, and you in your, like I read, uh, you've talked about this both as a first study and then as why don't Canadian textbooks specifically was uh, address them and then you've responded to people. And so you've talked quite a bit about this, but the, so you've talked about more than just the four, but the four most high impact actions that you recommend in your 2017 study, drive less, fly less, eat less meat, have fewer children. Before we hit those one by one, let's get to what you'd said just a second ago about that the high high impact actions are not are, are the actions that should be taken by people who are having high impact. That like um why haven't the high impact actions been stressed before is sometimes people are like, well, uh not driving anymore is hard. Buying a high efficiency light bulb is easy. Maybe if I do a lot of easy things, uh, you know, it's climate change. It's not that hard. Bring a canvas bag to the grocery store. And your argument, your theoretical argument is emphasize things that are really going to matter. It seems like that's partly because of the actual literal effect. And it's partly because of what we've talked about, about people feeling like it's fruitless, people feeling like uh, their actions don't have an effect, is if you emphasize higher impact actions, that actually is psychologically as well as ecologically effective. Do things that are really actually going to make a difference. It's both a symbolic action and a practical one. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I mean, the study came about because Seth Wines, a Canadian, who's now back at UBC doing his PhD, but was here with us for his master's. He had been a high school science teacher in Canada. And a question he got from his students all the time was, what really matters? What can I do to fight climate change, to reduce my impact, um, to shrink my carbon footprint? And he wanted a, a good science-based answer to that. And he didn't find what he was looking for. So he did the work himself. Um, and in this paper that we developed together, that's the conclusion we came to that basically, as you mentioned, those four choices are um, systemic changes. So, I mean, climate change is caused by about 75% burning fossil fuels and about a quarter from land use, primarily from agriculture. And the biggest part of that is from eating animals. So we, with our thinking was we take the highest impact, um, the maximum effectiveness. So in other words, some other studies had framed it as, you know, drive less or drive more efficiently or, you know, inflate your tires. And we said, well, what's really going to be high impact is even if you drive an electric car, it still has half as many emissions. If you look at the whole life cycle today, 
uh, on average as a typical car. And so actually we have to think about the whole question of mobility and using cars to get around. And this is work being done in Sweden and in California now as well. In both those places, the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions now is private cars. So, I mean, having uh, infrastructure and city planning and, um, you know, designing a society that's dependent on private cars is locking in higher emissions. And that's a problem. And this is what, so like, let's get to the drive, don't drive, right? I actually said a second ago, drive less, but you're right. What you say, of course, actually, you're right about what you say. Um, <laughs> but the way you, the study was uh, live car free. Right. It wasn't drive less. Right. It was don't drive, don't have a car. I mean, we try to go for the positive framing of car free uh, because it's an active choice and it comes with many co-benefits like cleaner air and healthier cities and fewer kids with asthma and less expense, and I mean, that could go on, uh, lower obesity and better health from active transport. So, I mean, it's not only um, it's not only what you say no to, but also what you say yes to and what you create the possibility for in making different choices. I mean, I recognize when I lived in California, I had two cars, I owned two cars, and I used them a lot. I lived out in the country, uh, there was no public transport, it was about eight kilometers to the sort of center of town down a, a big mountain. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't have managed without a car to go grocery shopping, for example, um, or mm-hmm. to get to, to commute to school where I was studying. Moving here to Sweden, I now live about a 15 minute walk from work. And that makes such a huge difference. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of choice to live car free as I do now. Being able to walk to work, um, living in a place that has great public transport and good connections. Um, so there are also structural elements to it. But I mean... Um, these things really connect and reinforce each other. And I think that's something that's sometimes missing from the debate. It can be over um, kind of misconstrued as either individuals making private decisions or systemic change. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it because we really need both. I mean, we know that about 73% of greenhouse gas emissions come from private individual decisions. So that's how we get around mobility, how we heat and cool and light our homes, energy use, what we eat. Um, those are That's the majority of emissions. The rest come from government spending, public infrastructure and investment. But if we're going to tackle climate change, we have to bring emissions to zero. And that means those lifestyle emissions have to go down. And some of that comes from uh, especially high emitting individuals, choosing to make changes that keep a good quality of life and dramatically reduce our emissions. Some of it has to come from incentives and policies and larger scale changes, but you really don't, you know, you kind of need some leaders to go first and say, Hey, wait, we can actually do this. I mean, in a democracy, you're not going to get politicians who suddenly impose a strict carbon quota on an unwilling population. I mean, that's not going to be a sustainable solution. People won't think it's fair and they won't follow it. And this is where, like, the the live car free, I really like what you're saying about the systemic supports of that, that right? Like, what you're calling for is not only um, you individual person should just quit your job that is an hour away and, uh, <laughs> like, live as a hermit because you can't interact with the world anymore. You should just ar- make the the... But it's rather, if you're in a situation where that's possible, do it. If you're not, 
what can you do to change? What can you as an individual or we as a society do to change the systemic situation that allows you to live car-free? So I, for example, uh, my kid's school would is a 10-minute drive away. Uh, it would be an hour and 15-minute walking. There isn't a sidewalk for a lot of that time. And uh, six months out of the year, it's painfully miserable to walk that time. So the, the solution, the <laughs> yeah. live car free is not, well, walk that hour and 45 minutes in the slow and sleet with your six-year-old. It's uh, elect a city councillor who's going to build a sidewalk and elect a city councillor who's going to invest in buses and uh, maybe move closer to your school and make choices that are going to make that car-free life not just possible, but pleasant. Absolutely. A plus, you got it. <laughs> Good. Um, fly less. And you said, I, I think, if I recall, I don't have this note in front of me, but I think you said, like, skip one transatlantic flight, and that has a huge effect. Right. So we tried to frame all of the actions. So in terms of the effect of driving for a year, you know, there are good numbers on um, the average car owner by country that we studied and average occupancy and the average efficiency of that car and so on. So we could make a good estimate um, across all these studies of, okay, what's the emissions impact of, of driving a car for a year? And the same thing with diet. We have good numbers for that. Um, very few people globally have actually ever been on a plane. Right. So it's a very globally unusual activity. Um, for those of us who have or who continue to, to fly, that's almost certainly the by far biggest part of our personal carbon footprint. So that was the only one that we didn't phrase, I think, as a more life, like a, over the course of a year. Um, because if you're taking 10 flights a year, it's not enough to reduce by one, basically. Right. Um yeah, but so the point was, I mean, flying is an incredibly carbon intensive activity. Um, it is just enormously more resource demanding to lift something off of the earth and move it around that quickly uh, compared with other options. And it has a very high carbon footprint. So, for example, what we showed was that on average, a flight between round trip between, say, New York and London um, would be equivalent to the emissions from eight months of driving a car or two years of eating meat. So potentially in a weekend, if you're an ambitious jet setter who heads off to London for the weekend, um, you've used up that much carbon in a few days. Is the math on that divided among the 200 people on the flight or are we sharing that carbon uh, use? It, it's per person based on the average occupancy of the flight. That's what I thought. Just want to make that clear. Yeah, and again, the things like teleconferencing and things like lifestyle choices that are avoid traveling all over the world as much as you can are the way are are it feels like academics are particularly bad at uh, this. Absolutely. Yeah. This is yeah applies specifically to academics more than to most. Yeah, absolutely. And that's becoming a really big conversation and something I'm working on more and more. Um, so there, for several years, there's been an initiative for academics flying less who are 
um, both personally choosing to stop flying or to fly less for work and also to push for institutional change. And we're starting to see some really encouraging effects of that here in Sweden. In my own department, in December, we adopted a new travel policy that says our aim in principle is to be in line with 1.5 degrees. So um, right now we've warmed almost about one degree. The latest report said there are huge benefits if we can succeed at limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees. And that's also written into the Paris Agreement as an ambition. So in principle, we want to do that. That means we need to globally cut emissions in half in the next decade by 2030. So flying as an incredibly carbon intensive practice is an obvious place to start. And so we've, at Luxa said, um, we're making individual pledges for how we're going to reduce our travel emissions primarily from flying. Um, those can be formulated individually, but that model, but we're also not gonna fly within Sweden or within a 12 hour radius. So we can take the train, for example, from here to about Brussels. Hmm. Um, and that's something I've been doing. I stopped flying within Europe in 2012, inspired by a friend who had done the same and had found it really doable. Um, I mean, you have to think about your time a bit differently and more creatively and make good use of it. You're not going to take a two-day trip to Portugal uh, by train just to give a 15-minute talk and you know not interact with anyone or make the best use of that time. So it, it forces some reconsidering, but right. I think I've found it to be really positive. And there's a lot of energy and momentum now, I think, in academics and uh, academic circles, and also as a social movement, which I um, am just hiring a PhD student to study in Sweden, because there is this um, social movement that's been taking off here called We Stay on the Ground, that, of people who have um, given up flying for mm -hmm. the sake of climate and are making it into a um, really a movement, and it's having a big effect in politics and uh, in yeah, it's it's we also call it the takeoff of staying on the ground. So um, I think Sweden is really leading on this, which is really exciting. But you see this more and more like these kind of changes in norms. And one thing that, you know, when I was in university, I thought was really like glamorous and cool to buy, buy a plane ticket. And I couldn't wait to to do that whenever I had the chance. I mean, basically, whenever I had some extra money, I turned it into plane tickets. Um, and I just think about it differently now. And I think the younger generation is inherently thinking about it differently. I mean, there's some really strong youth voices in Sweden that have been really clear. Greta Thunberg, um, who started the, the climate strike in front of our parliament, you know, saying, mm -hmm. my generation can never fly because the old people have used up all of our carbon budget. And I mean, we just have to be thinking about this kind of mobility differently and have mobility in a different way. Well, it is like, yeah, absolutely. Like the uh, car thing, there's a systemic, not just an individual aspect to that, right? And that that is, it is a lot easier, a lot more practically um, plausible for someone in Europe to travel around by train. I live in Newfoundland. It is an eight hour drive to the other side of the <laughs> island and there's no one there. And then it's a, you know, eight hour ferry ride yeah. to get to Nova Scotia. Right. And then it's a, you know, like, I have to fly to leave it, it would be weeks to get to Toronto. <laughs> it's not actually weeks to get to Toronto, but it'd be a week, yeah. a week to get to Toronto driving from here. Uh, and I'm still, you know, like I have to fly sometimes mm. if I'm going to be anywhere. Mm. But the choice then is, well, do you really need to be there? 
Uh-huh. Uh, and keep working on other, keep working on thinking of alternatives. Yeah. Of uh, developing alternatives, both social and technological. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that makes sense. And I understand it depends on where you live. I mean, I still do fly back to North America to see my family there. And I think um, if I had been thinking as I am now about my own carbon budget in 2010, when I took this job, I'm not sure I would have chosen to live across an ocean from my family. Um, hmm. That's So I've reduced my flying 80%, but that is the flying I've not been able to stop yet. Although... My husband and I now have a plan by 2023, we are going to sail to North America. So we're looking to cut the next uh, half of the carbon there, but that will be both a fun adventure and a long-term goal. And it is really feasible. I mean, we also, we, we took a wedding tour by train through North America. He comes from uh, Alberta. So we started in Edmonton and went through Vancouver, uh, saw friends in Oregon, four or five stops throughout California, Madison, Wisconsin, where I did my master's, Washington, D.C., New York, and ended in Montreal all by a train. So okay. um, it is really feasible to travel in North America by train, actually. We talked about uh, eating meat. Um, I don't think necessarily we need to go back into it, things we've already said. Let's talk a little bit about the having fewer children. Um, it feels basically self-evident that the best thing we could do to reduce the human effect on whatever is to make there be fewer humans. Uh, but are we assuming that those children will be car driving, flying meat eaters? So the more people we have, um, the more carbon emissions we have. And I mean, uh, they multiply together. And so we know that population is a driver of increased emissions. Um, we, for our study, I mean, one really important point to make is that, as I mentioned, to limit the, the harm from climate change, we need to cut emissions globally in half in the next 10 years. So that means we need to cut emissions that exist today. And those emissions primarily come from flying and driving and eating meat uh, and from our energy systems to heat and cool our homes. In other words, if you choose not to have a child today, you're preventing future emissions, uh, but you're not cutting emissions mm. that exist now. So it's not a trade-off between, oh, I choose to be child-free for whatever reason, and you know that means I have tons and tons of extra carbon to spend on flying around the world. You know that that's still causing the problem. Right. Um, the number that we got, I mean, by far the biggest uh, having choosing to have a kid is a really big decision in life. I mean, it's a big personal and financial mm -hmm. and um, career choice. It has profound effects on everything. So. I guess, I mean, if you put it in the number terms, we found it was something like 73 times bigger impact than um, going meat-free for a year. But I guess philosophically, maybe it's kind of appropriate to think, yeah, it's probably 73 times, at least 73 times of a bigger decision of whether or not you're going to create and nurture a new human for the rest of your life versus are you going to have a hamburger, you know, today <laughs> or not. Um, I mean, these are also different categories of choices, right? So the, the number that we got was based on current emissions patterns. Right. Um, so assuming that those continue into the future and assuming that um, fertility rates continue as they are. So people, you know, have your, if you have a child, that child would go on to have the statistically likely number of children themselves and so on. So that's why it ends up being such a big number. Right. I mean, 
um, we know that we don't have generations and generations of times to fix the climate problem. If we're going to fix it, it has to be us who are alive now who do the heavy lifting and, and do the hard work and make it happen. So that number would go down a lot if we succeed in decarbonizing our energy and transport systems and uh, having more sustainable agriculture with a lot less meat and so on. But it's still a huge life choice and definitely a big choice for the climate, whether to have a child. It feels a bit like uh, if I'm sharing a tub of ice cream with my whole family and I, I could say, uh, you know, I could say everybody had a small amount, so we all have enough. But if my brother who loves ice cream takes two thirds of the tub, then either everyone else needs to have even less or my sister won't get any. And having fewer kids is, feels a bit like don't let your sister have any ice cream. Uh, maybe that'll mean I get more, but it, it, maybe it'll mean my brother gets even more than that. They're like if the high, if the greedy people are less greedy, everyone else will get more. <laughs> if the high impact people <laughs> have less impact, if you don't fly and you don't eat meat and you don't drive, then kids who don't fly and don't eat meat and don't drive are going to have that much less of an impact and the the share can be shared between more people? Well, I really don't buy that argument. And I I might have been more convinced by it before we published this paper and I saw the reaction to it. <laughs> but the reason that I don't buy it is because really two reasons. One, I personally, I don't think it's right to use kids as an instrument to have mm. an instrumental reason for having kids. Like, oh, I want to have a kid because you know, they will be a good person who do good in the world. I mean, that seems like a nice reason to have a kid, but, you know, it's maybe a slippery slope into, you know, because they will be a popular cheerleader like I never was and, you know, I can live vicariously through them. Or, I mean, um, I think it's, it's not a good idea perhaps to, I mean, people should decide for themselves why to have kids, but that's my own view on it. I don't like that line of reasoning. I also don't like the idea that having kids is the only way that we could possibly pass on our values and because then it becomes this kind of competitive and at the worst case sort of mm, conflictual or warlike hmm. uh, race that you know there's it gets at this idea that there's a right kind of person who should be having kids and a wrong kind of person and I mean of course I understand that we all would think that our values are wonderful and great and everyone else should share them and be more like us but I've seen that this can very quickly spill over to, um, you know, only certain people who look a certain way or have a certain mm -hmm. religious background or live in a certain place should be having kids. And I find that a really detestable argument. I mean, it's basically a human right to make that decision. And I don't think it's right to um, sort of weaponize it in that way. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Now it's time for peer review, or I tried my best, but I still do not understand. Or ask a few questions that remain for me. Sure. The first one is, what is the difference, especially in the context of sustainability science, what's the difference between scholarship and activism? Uh, so scholarship, I think, is, would be understood as publication in peer-reviewed journals. That's the main metric. Um, and activism would be advocating for specific policies. Mm -hmm. But in a goal-oriented discipline, isn't advocating for specific policies part of the premise of the discipline? 
Well, I certainly see it that way. And so, for example, I mean, the the Paris Agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, both of those have been reached through a large, comprehensive, democratic process. And I take those as the starting points of fundamental agreement that this is in the best interest of humanity, that we avoid dangerous climate change, that we have zero hunger and zero poverty, that we have healthy ecosystems. People have essentially voted for these things, even if it wasn't through election, but mm. through this policymaking process. I don't see it as controversial to advocate for those goals. And um, so I try to frame my advocacy in light of that. You know, look, we we should be avoiding dangerous climate change. We should be meeting these sustainability goals. There's room for and need for a discussion and debate about what's the best way to do that. What's the appropriate use of resource? Who should be doing what? Um, that's what we need democracy for. But to me, I see it as really fundamental to sustainability science to say, here are the goals. Remember, you guys agreed to this. You know, <laughs> like, how are we going to get there? We, we can't forget about it. Don't just be thinking about the next quarter's shareholder returns alone. We also have to meet these goals along the way. I think a lot of the questions I had prepared to ask uh, we've really addressed in this through this conversation. Like I was going to ask about the balance between individual lifestyle choices and policy uh, changes, but I think we've really talked about that or the balance between preventing climate change and preparing for and adapting it. So in the interest of time, I'm going to push to the end of my little list of questions and end with this one. Kind of wine do you like? <laughs> I am a big fan of Pinot Noir. That was the grape that I studied for my PhD, and I chose it both because it grows around my hometown, and uh, for me has a lot of happy memories and tradition. And it's also a variety that's threatened by climate change because it thrives in cooler climates. So I really enjoy and love Pinot Noir, and there are many reasons to stop climate change but one of them is so that we can still enjoy pinot noir i had my wife and i briefly had a blog that was uh stupid that we tried to pair wine with junk food <laughs> that's great we found that uh an australian shiraz pairs quite nicely with jalapeno cheddar doritos Ooh. but uh, we could not find a good pairing with cool ranch doritos <laughs> I'll say Chardonnay was just terrible. <laughs> but it, what a noble endeavor. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, thank you so very much for joining me. This has been an awful lot of fun. Where can people find and follow you and your work? Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I love the format. What a great idea. And it, it's really been fun for me. Um, my website is kimnicholas.com. And I'm on Twitter at K-A underscore Nicholas. Well, uh, and I have to... You tell the listeners, I especially appreciate because there was a technological issue at the beginning and you were gracious and patient enough to have to fake the first half of our conversation a second time. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for that. This has been an absolute delight. I'll definitely keep watching and keep uh, following your research. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this work and thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. And goodbye to you, listeners of Halfway Expert. Before you go, I want to thank you for joining me again. If you like this show and the things I do, please rate and review this podcast so more people can find it. You can find and follow Halfway Expert on Twitter at HalfExpert. And if you want to get in touch with me in a longer way than Twitter allows, you can email HalfwayExpert at gmail.com. 
If you notice anything that I got wrong on this episode, please do bring it to my attention and I will correct it on a future episode. If you really like the things that I do, please consider supporting me on Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast, where you can support this podcast and the other podcasts that I make. In the show notes to this episode, you will find a link to a bibliography of all the sources I used in my week of study and to a reading list Kim has suggested. I've been Dr. Paul Moffat. Trust me, I'm an expert. <laughs>